Start with a brief recap as we always do. Um, we are ch- 18 chapters in at this point. We might at some point need more than a, a brief recap. But here it is. After being introduced to our two souls. The animal soul which drives us to personal worldly success. And the godly soul which pulls us closer to Hashem. And to bring Hashem into this world. And we gave a deeper definition of what is good, what is bad, and everything in between. After those first eight chapters that introduce us to the two souls, we began to describe the battle of the souls. The inner, the inner battle that we experience over which of these two souls will dominate our city. And we described how the tzaddik has won the battle having his animal or existential soul completely committed to the aspirations of the godly soul. So he still has an animal soul, but his animal soul is completely committed to the godly soul. That's the tzaddik. The Russia has lost the battle, even if for a fleeting moment, allowing his animal soul to determine how he behaves. The Benini is fighting vigorously, to retain control over, of his behavior, despite the onslaught, onslaught of temptations being fired at him by his animal soul, utilizing his weaponry comprised of prayer, mental discipline, and the light of Hashem to withstand the onslaught of temptations being thrown at him by his animal soul. So the Bainani is fighting a vicious battle. That said, in chapter 14, the author of the Tadya, the Alter Rebbe, assured us that we can all be a Bedini. And I'll add, even if for but a moment, <coughs> but at every moment, utilizing the above tools as well as by continuously reminding ourselves how much we want to remain connected to Hashem and that how sins indeed do separate us from Him. Last chapter, last week, chapter 15, we spoke about the difference between he who serves Hashem, two weeks ago, and he who serves him not. And we described that it's not just talking about a tzaddik or a rasha. It's describing two ways of operating. We described how they could both be the benedi. But you can have a benedi that doesn't serve Hashem. He's not fighting a battle. What does that mean? It's when a person... He's not a tzaddik, which means he doesn't feel the love, the aspiration, the excitement to want to be connected to Hashem. Um, nor is he a rasha. He is not um, falling uh, uh, prey to uh, inappropriate behavior or to um, uh, desires, inappropriate desires. So what is it that's keeping him straight? We said we described him as the boring bainity, meaning that... His success is simply because he's not particularly uh, excited by the temptations of the animal soul, which we described in three different areas, whether it be uh, a temptation that disturbs him from his studying. Part of our day as a Jew or part of our life as a Jew is to have times that we learn. And uh, just as we're about to sit down to learn, that's when the distractions come. Suddenly we remember everything. There was a particular rebbe that once uh, came over to somebody after davening and he said to him, I was just talking about learning, but the same goes for davening, and he said to him, welcome home. He said, I never went anywhere. 
He said, why, I saw you in this marketplace and then in that marketplace. <laughs> he was able to, he saw that he went on a long journey in the process of his davening. So uh, that's one of the three areas that the animal soul challenges us, and that is to be distracted. But this particular person is very disciplined. He's what's called in Hebrew, Barash Chayra, Abamor, um, uh, introvert or uh, um, serious temperament, where he's able to sit and learn without distraction. So that's not coming with a fight. And the second of the challenges, which is um, uh, inappropriate behavior between men and women, again, he's just naturally uh, cold. He doesn't get excited by it. And as far as the third challenge, which is... Uh, the desire for material wealth, again, he, uh, he's very happy. He's happy with what he has. So that was what we described in our last class, was the Benini who is neither a tzaddik, because he's not excited about Hashem, nor is he a Russia because he's actually not sinning. But he's not a fighter either. He's not, an, in Hebrew, an Ovid, or Oved, which we described at great length in the last class, is somebody who is working. We described that Sadiq is also not referred to as a hard worker. He's more an Evid. He's a servant. He's, he's, he's already won the battle. And at the end of last week, we ended with a uh, um, call that we should all be able to be fighters, that we should go the extra mile. And we introduced what we're going to discuss today, which is how do we up our game in an amazing way, in a significant way? Can we change? It's a question I often think about. Can I change? And does age get into the way? <laughs> You're saying maybe I'm too young to change. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'll tell you this much when I was studying I spent a year studying in Kailal studying uh, um, after we got married before we moved here to South Africa I was studying in the Upper, upper East Side in, uh, in a Chabad uh, in a Chabad house there they had a boarding program ran from about 6 something till uh, 12 1 p.m. And uh, with us was a somebody who had been a reform rabbi. His name is Simcha Bonim. Forgot his last name. I was going to tell you so you could Google him, but he had a, he said he had a community of about a thousand people. And uh, he woke up one morning, and he decided he wants to go to yeshiva traditional yeshiva, not the, where he had gotten his graduates as a reform rabbi. And then he, uh, he changed his life around. He used to come every morning and used to learn with us, like um, with, with uh, taking in every word he could. So he definitely, he was in his 80s wow. and he completely changed his life around. It was wow. a real inspiration. Yes. He used to joke, he used to say that my congregants used to ask me, Rabbi, how could you eat there? Is, is it kosher? He used to say, it's kosher enough for me. And he used to joke how it was just all so subjective. And so, and uh, uh, that was his way of responding that, you know, it doesn't matter to me if it's not kosher. But that was just um, a 
tangent, but back to the topic at hand. Can we change? Does he still have his 1,000 congregants? No, no, no. Probably his 2,000. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Often when, you know, there was a, one of the Chabad Rebbe, I forgot if it was the Alter Rebbe or the third Chabad Rebbe, was, was told to have said that he was debating whether to add into one of his uh, works the word truth, to serve Hashem with truth. And he decided to add it, and as a result of that, he lost thousands of followers. Hmm. Now, obviously, everybody is looking for the truth, but when you're talking about big numbers, I said it comes with a sacrifice. So, no, he didn't have his community of a thousand people. He actually dealt with politics, and I think the community closed down. But there he was. He used to come every morning to our little uh, morning coil program of maybe 10, 15 people, and he, and he was loving life. So uh, it's not always about the numbers. What made him change? What made him change from being a reform rabbi? Did he just wake up one morning and feel that he wanted to go to the yeshiva? I think so. I think he decided he wanted to go and learn. Like he felt like there was something as, 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 as accomplished as he wanted. He felt like he, he had a new pursuit for knowledge and he went off to the Mayanat Institute in Jerusalem, which is yeshiva for people with, from, from uh, um, secular backgrounds. And, uh, and then he describes how one day after coming back from yeshiva, he just was just walking in the Upper East Side and he decided to just walk into the Chabadas. And he'd been living there for the last maybe 40, 50 years. And he never even, he would never have considered it. You can't say he changed. You can only say he went on a study program. He's still a reformed rabbi that he was, unless he decides to give up that identity. Uh, They're two separate issues. Uh, I, just, think that. I, think, I think he did that. I think he did the latter of what you said. I'm saying sometimes for change we have to give up our identity. Uh, what we thought change. was our identity. Yes. That's why we battle with change. But um, in, his, in his case, he simply studied. We don't know if he still saw himself as the reform rabbi, the outsider. I, think I don't think he did. I really think he went through an interchange. Okay. I mean, we spent hours with him every day. <laughs> he joined us and he used to talk. And he used to give us tips in public speaking, actually. <laughs> he was very good at it. I guess we've answered my question. Oh, okay. <laughs> Can we change? Age getting away. Oh, 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 okay. There's an assumption in there. That's a very important point, actually, Maxine. I don't know, there's this like, notion where people like to start thinking of themselves as old. I think it's ridiculous. Everybody here is super young. You're like, at the beginning of your life, you've got many great years ahead of you, and you should never think of yourself otherwise. Right. <laughs> L'chaim. Then we can say you're never too young to change, correct? Yeah. That's what I said. Yeah. Um, back to the, the text. The end of last chapter, chapter 15, we described how there is the donkey which goes 10 parsa, and to rent him you've got to pay 100 zoos. And then there's a donkey that goes 11 parsa, and for him you, him you need to pay 200 zoos. How in the market, the donkey that goes just 10% more costs double the price. And we describe the reason for that is not because a person wants to just go slightly further, but because if it's a donkey that goes 11 parsa, it's an indication 
that it's a different type of donkey. It, it, it's, it's got different abilities. And this is how the Alter Rebbe wrapped up chapter 15. He said, to be a fighter, to go out of the boring Bainini space, meaning to go out of the space where you're just going by, you just, you just, you're living because you weren't hit by a truck. You're just doing the right thing because you weren't tempted to do the wrong thing. To break out of that space and to be able to, to go beyond yourself, to be able to achieve more than you thought that you could achieve, requires a different type of engine. And I think this is a very important point. As I mentioned last time we learned, that sometimes a person could wake up in the morning or before they go to sleep and they could decide that, you know, today is going to be revolutionary. It's going to be different. I'm ready to change. And then five minutes down the line, they uh, start reconsidering. <laughs> you know, I'm the same old guy, the same thing as yesterday, the same thing as the day before. So very nice to, to make a resolution for change, but... Uh, I don't feel that I could actually do it. Yes. I think that a life experience very often leads to change. And while you might want to change uh, or have an intention to change, you don't really change unless there is a reason or a very definite life experience that leads you to change. It's just my view. <laughs> Sometimes it doesn't, and it, that's not always. It doesn't always need to be that cause either. Yes, it's true, but but that very often does cause you you do make the change because of the life experience. Absolutely. I just don't think that that's the only way that it's possible. Okay. I think that just waking up on a regular morning, we, uh, we could really grow, grow significantly. You know, it's, it's, it's not only when uh, Hashem decides that um, certain things we experience that require us to either change for the better or the worse and we can choose now how are we going to react is this going to make me worse or is it going to make me better and a person decides that they're going to become better which is courageous but but i think also on an everyday basis we have that ability i was asking myself 18 chapters down the line in tanya again what am i doing you know why am i taking of everybody's time what are we trying to achieve? What's the objective? And I keep asking myself this question. And uh, I thought last night, I was speaking to my sister, sometimes it helps to have people uh, a couple of uh, different time zones, because you can just pick up the phone and call. <laughs> and uh, I was discussing this with her. And uh, it very much leads to where we're going with chapter chapter 16 and 17 of the Tanya, what we're learning today. And that is that we do need to continuously nurture this journey. We are right now continuously fueling up once a week on a Monday morning. We're getting additional fuel to be able to go through change. So there's the extreme change that happens as a result of an experience. And then there's a consistent change that, that, got, that happens as a result of investment. And, and, and hopefully, 
by us investing our time into studying and learning these uh, messages and concepts being taught in the Tanya, this could actually help us facilitate change. So just to sum it up, last chapter, we concluded by saying that in order to achieve change, we need to upgrade our operating system. And how do we upgrade our operating system? Through specific exercises, right? So if a guy gets called up for Hagba and he's struggling to hold the Torah up and he decides that the next time he gets called up, he wants to be able to uh, show everybody his strength, just an analogy, then he needs to uh, get himself a personal trainer and start going to gym on a con- continuous basis. And then the next time he's called up to the Torah, a few months down the line, he'll, he'll pick it up with strength because he's, he's exercised, he's, he's committed himself to meet with a regular trainer and to do those exercises. And then he is changed. Through that consistent input, he changed. He couldn't pick up the Torah before, and now he could. And just as you have physical exercise, which is so important, there are also, there's also spiritual exercise, which helps us spiritually change. And that is the answer to how that donkey can go that one extra parasa. It's because the donkey is... It's got a different operating system because it's being treated differently. And when we're able to nurture our neshamas through spiritual exercise, we're able to experience change. So how do we do this? And we already mentioned this, our spiritual toolkit in chapter 12, 13, 14. We described a few different things. We spoke about the power of mind over the, uh, over the heart and about the power of prayer, the power of bringing the light of Hashem into our lives. And we just mentioned it as kind of tools that we should bear in mind to pull out in our spiritual toolkit in order to be able to uh, withstand the temptations of the animal within. But here in chapter 16 and 17, or chapter 16, at least in the beginning, we described that We want to enter into a certain space to have the strength to, to fight our animal and to have the strength to change. And how do we enter into living like a Bainani? Not just by pulling out a tool at a moment of attack, but rather to really get into a space to strengthen our immune system to be able to achieve much more than we, can, than we would be able to achieve. And we go back to the point that we mentioned in chapter 12, but we explained it on a much deeper level, and that is the principle of mind over heart. In chapter 12, just to, if you just walked into the class right now and you wanted to know what we're talking about, we're going to describe two principles in today's class. We're going to describe the first principle of mind over heart, and the second principle of it's all about affecting the action. Can you unlock, unlock the sliding door? The sliding door. Okay, sorry, I thought it was locked. So those are, if you just walked into the class right now, those are the two principles. I said that a second ago as well, don't worry. 
Those are the two principles of chapter 16 and 17. Number one, we're going to describe the big principle of the mind controlling the heart. And the second big principle we'll describe is how it's all about the action. Or it's about motivating a a mindful action. So first principle is mind over heart. Second principle is how does how how can this affect our actions? So now the first principle, mind over heart. In chapter twelve, we describe mind over heart as a tug of war. That when the heart is pulling us in the wrong direction, the mind at any given moment has the ability to overpower the heart and bring us to do the right thing. Which is why we said that when a person is standing in court, they can't say that I couldn't help it. I really wanted to because you may have wanted to. But you knew it was the right thing and you should have exercised your freedom of choice to ensure that you did the right thing despite the way you felt. That was chapter 12. Chapter, chapter 16 and 17, we give a deeper explanation of mind over heart. And that is that by committing our mind to study, we're able to transform our hearts. Not completely. If we completely transformed our heart, we'd be a tzaddik. So we will always still have, as long as we're not a tzaddik, we will have those temptations to do the wrong thing. But we're able to significantly impact the heart that it feels differently about things that it previously felt strongly about. So again, chapter 12 says that, you know, as much as the heart is craving that ham sandwich, the mind says, "Uh uh-uh, you can't eat it. Chapter 16, 17 is saying that by applying the mind to learn about the uh, makeup of that ham sandwich and what um, spiritual effect it has on me, my heart will crave it less. And, and therefore, mind controls the heart, not by force, but by influence. Mm. A tactic in debates. Mm. Debates often uh, don't go very far, but a tactic in debates is... Or rather than debate, when you debate somebody, so then you've got up arms against each other. You say A and I say B, and we're going to each see how, the, uh, uh, how I'm right and you're wrong. But a higher level is when somebody's, a, a, a greater ability is when somebody says, you know, it's a little bit sneaky, but he says, you know, I think I agree with you. What you're saying is, and then you put into the other person's words what you're trying to say. <laughs> okay, so then that's just being silly. But there is a concept of, is it by force or is it by persuasion? Is it by uh, influence? And we say here in chapter 16, 17, that the mind can influence the heart, not just tug of war, fight against the heart, but it could actually affect how the heart feels. Now, how does it achieve this? So there are basically four building blocks, and they are study, think, feel, do. I'm just using simple words, which a friend of mine was using in his Tanya class. So the first step in order to influence our heart is to actually study about God. The Rambam, in his very first mitzvah, he lists all the 613 mitzvahs. So the very first mitzvah, the Rambam says, the first of the 613 commandments is to know that there's a God. The Barbadel. One of the commentaries on the Chumash challenges the Rambam. He says, how could there be a mitzvah to know that there's a God? 
after you know that there's a God, then you can do mitzvahs, and there's no longer a mitzvah to know that there's a God. <laughs> and if you don't know there's a God, then there's no mitzvahs. So that can't be counted as one of the mitzvahs. First you have the commander, and then you have the commandments. Good question. The answer, in defense of the Rambam, is the Rambam doesn't say just to believe in God. The Rambam says to know that there's a God. And the Rambam continues in his very first chapter of his magnum opus to elaborate on how we can say that there is a God. How we can know there's a God. Not just believe in God, but to actually know that there's a God. So, if I was to present the question to you, and I asked you, is the existence of God a belief or a fact? What would you say? For me? Okay. A belief. A belief. It's a leap of faith. A leap of faith, okay. Strong, but faith, belief, goes together. What do you say, Debbie? It's a very hard one. Belief. Belief. What do you say, baby? I think the answer is fact, but I think it's, I have belief. Okay, faith, belief. I think there's a huge difference between what the Rambam says and a Bargano, because if you know that there's a God, then you don't have to believe in God. Mm. To me, they're a contradiction, almost. You believe in that which you cannot know. Yeah. Hmm, exactly. Doesn't uh, the Rambam in the 13 Principles of Faith then go down and elaborate on that first statement? Yeah, he does. Belief in God. So you're right in saying that you believe in something that you don't know. Mm -hmm. There is that concept. But what that means is that belief is not based on knowledge. If you believe something because you know it, then it's not really believing it, it's knowing it. So belief would seem to have a weakness that when you don't know it, at least you believe it. Mm -hmm. This is faith. I don't know it, but I still believe it. Hasidus actually turns it around. This really requires a whole class in its own right. And it says that when you know something because it makes sense to you, then it's debatable. When something is based on intellect, then it has a finite foundation. As opposed to the belief of a Jew in God is not based on anything finite. It's something that we believe despite anything. It's something that we have deep within our neshama. The neshama has this intrinsic belief in God. And based on this deeper understanding of belief, not that belief falls short of knowing, but rather that belief actually has a stronger foundation than knowledge, then they're no longer a contradiction. They could be both, and they could be either. And the Rambam... Just, to, to have belief, should you, it, should you not have proof? No. Is there no need to have proof to, to, believe. to believe that something is true? Uh, no, generally when a person says, I believe so, they mean that um, I don't have proof, but this is how I feel. Generally, so, so what's the difference between faith or this is how I feel? 
I'm sorry, you yeah. know, I'm not... No, 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 I'm good. These questions that. are great. These questions are great. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's quite... It requires more time. But what I want to say is that, that I'll speak specifically, not in general. In general, sometimes it becomes a little bit tricky. Sometimes, sometimes when a person says, I believe you, it might mean that you've proven it to me. Or it might mean that I believe you, even though I'm not sure if that's really true. There's two possibilities. But when we speak more specifically about the belief of a Jew in God, the fact that a Jew believes in God is generally an idea that isn't a result of um, proof, but rather it's something that's just ingrained in our being, this, this inner belief in God. And not in all people, though. I can tell you people who don't believe in God, who mm -hmm. are Jewish. Uh, they they say there's only one God and that's a science. And, and that is science. Uh, science. Uh, the science-based view. I mean, and so I'm listening to you and thinking how this argument, how this paradigm would land with somebody who doesn't believe. Uh, okay. It's, and it's they a, wouldn't want fact either, you know, evidence-based. They would just, uh, yeah. But that, that's, we, we're not catering for that person. But even Einstein, towards the end of his life, says that the more he studies science, the more he believes in God. Yeah. Uh, uh, you uh, can actually look that science up. Is yeah, that's yeah. true. Science is not proven true. that there is a part of a being, that, a human being, that cannot, that is not physical. Meaning that there isn't a shadow within the human being. They don't call it the shower. It's yeah, called. Yeah, yeah. I'm going here. to bring one of these non-believers to this. Group. Okay, good. <laughs> we can do all we can. So, so, so I'll, say, I'll, I'll say like this. Really, it's it's a very it's a good question. It's an important question. But uh, but uh, my response is that no, I don't believe this is exclusive. I think that as long as a person is open-minded. And we're not here to say that you will believe or you do or rather give people an opportunity to just think and explore, then, uh, then there's what to learn and there's what to change. And, I, I, and that's, that's what I agree with because I think our minds only change when we grapple, when we grapple with things, yeah. when we fight the different, then we can move. But Correct. when we just blind faith, uh, there's something terrible about uh, Correct. But then you spoke about intellect, and to me... So let me, let me now conclude the thoughts, because okay. I, I think that will answer your question. The Barbadell was asking the Rabbah, how could there be a mitzvah to believe in God? Because if you believe in God, then there's no need, longer a need for that mitzvah, and if you don't, then there's no mitzvah. The, the, response, the answer of the Rambam would be, the Rambam preceded the Barbadell, but the response of the Rambam would be that there's belief in God, and there's a mitzvah to know him too. So a Jew starts with a belief in God and then learn about him so it actually becomes a fact. And so for me, I believe in God and it's all, she's also a fact. I really, I, I really, I'm going to borrow the term believe, but I don't mean it that way. I really believe that um, uh, to me, God is absolute. It's, 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 I, I think you can prove, you can prove the existence of God. And in fact, the Rambam says that that is the very first mitzvah. The very first mitzvah is not to suffice with a belief in God, which is a leap of faith that you cannot prove, but rather engage in study where you could actually make this concrete and real. The, there's a famous uh, rabbi, Rebbe, Rabbi Levi Yitzhak of Ardichov, and uh, known to be the defendant of the Jewish people. I've mentioned him previously in classes, and he... Uh, 
But he himself, he uh, didn't come from Hasidic background because there wasn't really much Hasidic background at the time. It was quite new. Or he could have come, but it was, it was new. It was in the early stages of Hasidism. And he decided to, after he got married, he decided he wants to go and discover who these Hasidim are. And his father-in-law was not happy about it at all. He's like, what, Judaism's not good enough for you that you try to find out all these uh, new paths and new ways. But he said, he went. He went for six months. And his father-in-law said to him, um, that tell us what you learned. So he comes back and he says, he asks him, what did you learn in Yeshiva for the last six months? And he said that, now I know that there's a God. Oh. That's what took you six months of Yeshiva to learn. Let's call in the, the helper. And he calls in somebody that's working around the house and he, he asks her, tell me something. Is there a God? He says, sure, there's a God. He says, so, so why did you spend your last six months learning? He says, Sie sagt, as is Farada got. Aber ich weiß, as is Farada got. She says that there's a God, but I know there's a God. So he had spent the last six months of study, studying about God to the point that he didn't no longer was just saying it, but it was, he, he, he knew it. He knew it with concrete knowledge. This is the first of four building blocks. The second of these four building blocks is, we said, study, think, feel, do. The second of these four building blocks is to think about it. We like to think that you think about something until you understand, and once you understand, then you think about it no more. But there's a big theme, concept in Hasidus called hispoinenus, to be mispoinen, the correct translation is to contemplate. But the word contemplation is not something I often hear people talking about. And it really sounds a little bit, uh, uh, I don't know what. But well, I hear people constantly talk about reflective practice. Yeah. And this practice of reflection is de facto in... Okay, great. Reflection. Yeah. Reflection. So maybe that's a good word. Maybe rather than, we, could, we don't need to call it think, we could say reflect. What reflect means is, once you've studied about it and you know that it's real, take time reflecting upon it. Reflect. Thank you. Because think is a bit vague. So study, yes. Can I, is it not, if you twist it around and say, I think it's easier to prove there is a God than there isn't. If, if people are looking for proof. Because it's so, if you, if you accept the existence of a God, then all the inexplicable is explained. You know, there's no, there's no questions. It's much easier to believe than not to believe because you can't explain logically or with proof a lot of what's happening, nature, all this kind of thing. So, so yeah. um, I could agree with everything you've just said and I could also argue with everything you've just said. <laughs> And I may be right and I may be wrong. Um, and actually more important than engaging in debate is really to allocate time for us to understand what you're describing. Really through study, which is the first of the four building blocks, then we can make more sense of it. But without study, then it's not so, it's not so easy. Yes and no. Every argument is a counter-argument. Yeah, I, I have some arguments in my head that I think that I could say in one minute and it already leaves the scientists with difficulty. But nonetheless, 
Again, it's not so much about the debate, but rather it's about in our own lives, moving over from belief in God to the knowledge of God. Because I think what you're saying almost sounds like a bit of a cop-out to me. If it's the kind of belief without any knowledge. Because I can't come to terms with this, so I just believe that there must be. Well, I think, Renee, you were saying both. Sometimes it's, it's, it's an easier way to live, and also sometimes it's an easier way to explain things. But the word easy actually is a tool that the, the critic uses to say that, Judea, that, that um, religion is a crutch. That's one of their arguments. In this. We hear it out in Israel. That it, like it's the moment people are struggling, then suddenly so it's just, it's a, they, they like to refer to it as, as a, a solution to difficulties. But they say that it's not necessarily the, they argue it's not the right solution. I could counter argue it that, uh, on the contrary, but... but but all his teenage years, this is what he was busy doing. <laughs> I love debating. You're talking about two separate things. On the one level, you're talking about content, uh, the thing. But then you're also talking about process. Yes. Now you're talking about the process one goes through. And then you're talking about, am, am I hearing that? Look, absolutely. So we said there's four building blocks. The first building block is to study. Studying requires thought, but it's thought to eventually reach a conclusion, to, to come to an understanding. That's step number one. So, what you said was all correct, but now bottom line, we wanted to know how do we upgrade our operating system to be able to walk 11 parser? How do we be able to change, to be able to do that hagba, to be able to achieve something that we just seem to never be able to achieve? So we said it's through spiritual exercise, which requires four steps. The first step is study. We need to commit time to actually learn about God. There's a lot of literature. And by studying about it, it becomes more of a fact. And that's a game changer. That's step number one. Step number two is to reflect. Once you now have reached this understanding, take time to think about it. Think about something which you already know. And this is called his spoilerless. So take time to think. And amongst the it would be said that you know, some chassidim only daven once a week, some chassidim only daven once a month. Now, it doesn't mean that they only opened the siddur that amount of time. It meant that when they used the words davening, they meant avoider, the work of davening. And that work of davening, which is that effort to experience change or to bring about change, required that to stop and think. And that's a rigorous spiritual exercise to reflect on the existence of God and then steps three and four should automatically follow. Once we've studied and we've reflected, then we should develop a feeling and that should change the way we act. But unfortunately, it doesn't always work that way. So we'll speak more about this. Please, God, next week we'll do part two of chapters 16 and 17. Thank you. Thank you very much.